holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. This is Arsecast Extra. Hello there, welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. Hello to you, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, uh, we're recording a little later than usual, but I think we probably needed the time to digest and prepare ourselves for this. Yeah, I mean, it's not that's not why we're recording later, um, but... No, it's because I was driving a car back from Wales, but, you know... We've got to take, we've got to grasp at straws here. Yeah, I think uh, straws are the only thing that we've got let, uh, left to grasp. Uh, to I, I don't even know where to fucking start. Uh, um, no. You know, normally I, when we do the podcast, I sort of have a clear idea of how things are going to go and what we're going to talk about and how we're going to talk about it and what structure it might take. You know, that's not to say we do an awful lot of planning other than sort of say, hello, let's start recording. But, you know, you just have it in your head that this is the way it's going to go. And today, I'm really not sure what we can say that we haven't already said. I'm not sure what we can analyze that we haven't already analyzed. And Mm. yeah, it feels like a weird one. So we'll just have to wait and see where it takes us. I mean, maybe we'll get to an argument about jam and that will fill the next hour somehow. I I don't know. It's really difficult today. It's, It's difficult because... But by the same token, I can't actually say I feel particularly surprised. I mean, has this caught you off guard at all? I, I, I kind of, even though we had the little upturn, I always felt like this was a game that wasn't going to end prettily for mm. Arsenal. No, not not terribly surprised. I was a little more hopeful going into it than I would have been. You know, after the the FA Cup game, I thought, well, okay, you know, there's something there. There's something still there after mm. the FA Cup mm. game, and then. You know, I could see when we played Leicester in midweek, you're going, well, look, we did just play 120 minutes against Manchester City playing against a team that hadn't played a game and they were just interested in defending. It wasn't a great performance. We got lucky with the goal, etc., etc. Well, yeah, there's a good plane going over. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the, plane, the plane of doom. Um, it's pro- uh, hang on, let me just have a look. It's a, yeah, there is a Wengerin banner draping out the back of it. <laughs> um, I wonder who's flying that. But I think we did say, didn't we, that, you know, in order to, to say that we've really turned the corner, we had to do it in these, these other games, these um, final seven fixtures that we have remaining in the Premier League or six or seven that we had at that point. And Tottenham was always going to be the real test I think you know there's I think there's Mm. there was something interesting that Arsene Wenger said last week after the Man City game he said that uh, you know if you're doing poorly in one competition another competition sort of feels like an escape 
from yeah from you know the mundan the mundanity of of the league football or, or or you're in such a position in the league that no matter how hard you try you can't see a way out but at least a cup game gives you a fresh focus and i think it's clear that was that was the case with the manchester city game yeah i mean it's interesting that he's using that language because that's kind of the same way he talked about the new formation isn't it it's mm. like something different something to shift your focus and I think in there is a kind of tacit admission that our season and our league season particularly is kind of entrenched in this grim situation and, and really we're looking for things to dig us out of it but mm. we are really in the mire and you know the Middlesbrough and the Leicester wins and obviously the City game were some welcome respite but I guess I guess what happened at White Hart Lane was a bit of a reality check. I mean, I'm looking at the league table now. I'm seeing Tottenham in second. I'm seeing Arsenal in sixth. I'm seeing a gap of, of 14 points. No, you're really, not. No, you're not. You're seeing a gap of 17 points. Oh, let me refresh the page. Yeah, sorry. That's a page from yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I, wish, I wish it was still true. But, like, I... Uh, you know, we've seen big gaps between us and Spurs in the past, but never at this stage of the season, never with so little time left, you know, and obviously it cemented what we knew was coming, that mm. they're going to finish above us, but not just above us, well clear of us. And I thought the the gulf between the two teams, and I know that sounds dramatic to talk about it like that, but the gulf between the two teams was evident yesterday during that game. Mm. It really was. They were by far... The better team. They were much more organized. They knew what they wanted to do. They knew how they wanted to do it and how they could execute the various things that they wanted to, to execute. Whereas we, whenever we got the ball, you know, I was looking at an Arsenal side who couldn't keep the ball. And that's extraordinary mm. for, for, for Arsenal. Um, maybe not when we're playing really good opposition anymore, but you, you do feel like, we really struggle to know what it is we're supposed to be doing and how it is we're supposed to be doing it. The team looks disjointed. It looks like it doesn't quite understand the system it's supposed to be playing. And, you know, it's um, it's very difficult, isn't it, to look at a Tottenham side like that and 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 compare it to us and the way that we played. You know, it... it I don't even know what to say without without wanting to kill yourself. No, I, you know, I, I, uh, I, 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 um, you know, they do in the derby games. They do always do a kind of combined eleven thing, Ugh. and yeah, I mean, obviously they are awful. But this year particularly, I was sort of seeing those that slew of articles come out about the combined eleven, and I was thinking, never has that article felt less relevant because when pe when you know at the end of the game Jamie Redknapp says well you know if you ask Mauricio Pochettino how many of those Arsenal players he'd want in his team how many would he say one or two I think that is completely missing the point at this stage like I look at those two 11s and I genuinely think that Arsenal have got probably more talented players than Spurs yeah uh, on balance I think the idea that this is about the quality of the players and their talent is is complete nonsense. And I think putting those combined 11s together and saying, oh, well, you know, you, Arsenal players wouldn't get in. They would. If they had that coach, they they probably, you know, it would be, if you put those two squads together, it'd be predominantly Arsenal players. I really, really believe that. Um, and, you know, I was doing player ratings yesterday for ESPN. I know you do player ratings for Ask Blog News. I mm. don't know how you felt about it, but I felt like this feels mental now. Like, talking about individual player performances almost feels 
redundant. Absurd. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. I mean, I know we're doing ourselves out of a good deal of content because <laughs> we, we've got to, we're going to have to fill the podcast and talk about players, but it, it's not about that mm. anymore, is it? No, because you look at what this team looked like until, was it December? You know, mm. they, they'd beaten Chelsea 3-0. They weren't necessarily that convincing against Manchester United away. Didn't have a great North London derby at the Emirates. But, you know, they'd been unbeaten for 19 games. And the, there was, I think, some genuine belief that this was a group of players who could go and do something. Because we looked at the squad and looked at the players, player for player. You look at it in each position. You think, have we got back up there? Have we got enough centre-halves? Have we got enough midfielders? Is there enough to fill those front three positions? And the way that this season has essentially gone off a cliff, it cannot be because one or two players aren't playing as well as they should or because we need something a bit different in midfield. And, I, you know, I don't dispute that we could do with something a bit different in midfield, but I don't think that's the general point. It's the fact that there's been a collective malaise that has set in and taken hold of, of this group of players that either they or the manager seem completely unable to get them out of. We've won... Yeah. We have won six of our last 16 games and two of those games were against non-league opposition. I mean, that really does speak for itself, but obviously that's looking at the the relatively recent results. If you look back at our fixtures away to teams in the top six over the last two years, it's it's a terrible record. I mean, I don't have the stats to have, but I don't think we've won a league fixture like that in what, two years, is it? Something like that? Actually, I, I'm pretty sure I had a, a question about that. Um... Let me see if I can find it here. I know we're not doing the questions part yet, but uh, yeah, Adam Adam Arsenal says we haven't won an away game versus the current top six in two years. That's extraordinary. Mm. That really is extraordinary. Well, it's extraordinary for a club who are in that top six. Do you know what I mean? And, and, sure. and that's the the well, fear that, that we're we're being pushed pushed out really because we we, we can't. We're not competing in these games regularly enough. Mm. You look at a North London derby as a game in which form goes out the window. We've said that plenty of times, and that's true to an extent. But I think yesterday was one where where form was was in the window. I don't know how you would describe it, but but the very least you want from Arsenal players is to work hard for each other to try and get something from a game. And to me, it looked like too many players were playing for themselves yesterday. There wasn't enough team focus on the way that we played. When players got the ball, they were looking to do things with it. There was one moment where I think Giroud had it down the left-hand side. We'd worked the ball down the left-hand side. And maybe he was expecting a runner. Maybe he was expecting somebody to back him up in that position. He just played a ball infield, blind, didn't look to see who was there, and it just went straight to a Tottenham player. You look at the statistics that Gibbs, Oxlade-Chamberlain, and Alexis Sanchez lost possession 20 times each. I mean, what, I what is that? I know. What is, I mean, it's not because these players are so unbelievably shit that they can't pass the ball to another Arsenal player. And it's not as if it's just because it's Tottenham or how good Tottenham were yesterday or how hard they worked. That's a, a factor, of course. But we've played this badly against other sides. You know, you look at what what we did against Crystal Palace and what we did against West Brom. 
and you're asking, well, what on earth is happening or not happening? And what the fuck is anyone going to do about it? Do you think it's particularly discouraging having had the sort of Philip of the City game and, and feeling like there was a chance there for us to turn things around a little bit? Do you think that makes what happened at White Hart Lane more painful? A, a little bit, because, you know, Arsene Wenger was talking about how he, before the game, <laughs> it's one of those things that, like, he, he tends to do these, uh, uh, these stories about... Uh, there was one before West Brom. We've got to be careful from... Uh, set pieces against West Brom, he says, before the game. And then we concede two of the mm. stupidest corners you ever see. And then he talked about how the, the strength, the mental strength and character of his players was extraordinary before this game because, you know, they've been through a difficult period and they've they found it hard to get themselves out of it. And now, with three wins and reaching an FA Cup final, they've come through the other side. And then you look at them and you think, what, what, what are you seeing? What are you seeing? That we're that none of us are, or very few of us are seeing when those players go out on the pitch. Well, something he does say publicly quite regularly is, "Believe me, I watch these players every day in training. I, you know, I cannot question their mentality." But Arsene Wenger knows as well as anybody that you don't get any points for training. <laughs> you know, like that's one. There are plenty of players who are brilliant in training, don't deliver on the pitch. It's a known phenomenon within football, and it it must be the case. If we trust Arsene Wenger's judgment, that ask, that we've got plenty of those at London Colney. Do we trust his judgment, though? That's the thing. I mean, how how can you how can you marry those things? How can you talk about the extraordinary character of your players when they go out in a North London derby? And I won't say you know I'm not going to get into stuff like desire and fight and wanting it and all that kind of stuff. But you know what you can see a team that's working hard together, and that was Tottenham yesterday. You could see it. You could see the way that they they set themselves up. The little tactical switch at halftime to move Son over to the other side to run at uh, Kieran Gibbs and to you know um, see what Alexis go with him. He had a lot of joy down the left hand side in the first half. You know th- those were players who were switched on. Absolutely switched on. The Deli Alley goal is a perfect example of that. You know, soft defending. Uh, Christian Eriksen dances between a couple of players. And, you know, when Petr Cech saved, made that save, he had every right to expect one of his defenders to be, like, laser-focused on that ball and making sure that they got there before uh, whichever Tottenham player was lurking around. But Kieran Gibbs was standing watching. I can't remember who else was in the vicinity. But nobody was, nobody was there quickly enough. And it's those like two or three percent that make the difference in games, and we're we're found wanting yeah. again. Yeah, of course. I, I I know it's frustrating for some people to talk about abstract qualities like desire and belief and things like that. But I think something that's not abstract and that has a a practical application is is belief in a plan. Mm. And I just feel like Arsenal players look as if they don't believe in the plan. They're not committed to a strategy. Mm. And, I mean, of course, that always is going to come back on the manager. Mm. So, you know, either that's not in place or if it is, they're not listening or or they don't share his conviction about it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, we, speaking of plans, well, what did you make of what did you make of the the lineup? There were a couple of surprises in there in there for me straight away. Yeah, I was really surprised that. Uh, well, I wasn't necessarily su- surprised because I, I don't believe that Arsene Wenger really believes in three at the back. I don't think you play mm. for twenty one years at a club with a back four 
you know, the, the minute he took over at Arsenal, basically he changed from a back three to a back four. He's played that system his entire life at uh, this football club. I don't believe that he thinks three at the back is anything other than a last gasp, desperate attempt to to refocus his players somehow. And maybe, you know, it worked at Wembley, and full credit to that, it worked. But I don't think he's serious about the implementation of it, because if he were, he would not have uh, dropped Rob Holding against Leicester. Absolutely not. He would have kept him in the team. And if he deems Rob Holding good enough to play against Manchester City in an FA Cup semi-final, I know there were injuries involved, but Rob Holding was one of our best players at Wembley. I completely agree. And, and it's, it's yeah. I mean, Kieran Gibbs wasn't so outstanding against Leicester that, you know, he demanded inclusion uh, at White Hart Lane. I, I, I was really surprised and disappointed. I thought maybe there was some justification for leaving Holding out Leicester because... You know, he's a young player. Wenger wanted to keep him fresh for the Spurs game, in my mind. Sure, when he was it, then left out of that match, I was, you know, flabbergasted. But, I mean, he's hardly played. He, has, he hasn't played. He's a young guy. He's 21 years of age. He can play three, four, three games a week. He's only made oh, sure. 12 or 15 appearances. So, you know, I, I, I just don't see why when you, in, in classic Arsene Wenger style, you stumble across something that works like that back three did at Wembley. Gabriel was excellent. Koscielny was very good. Holding was superb. Oxlade-Chamberlain on the right. Monreal on the left. You know, that was the platform for winning that game. It fucking worked. So why do you change it? Yeah. Why fucking fuck around with it? Because why? Because you want to prove that you can do it a different way or because, you, you know, I don't know, maybe he wasn't convinced himself. But there's no reason why Kieran Gibbs, and it's not a slight on Kieran Gibbs, starting a, a consecutive league games for the first time in two years. Like if anybody well, needed, you know, story. it really does tell its own story about, you know, where he is in the squad and how he's viewed. And, you know, he doesn't play. He doesn't play a left back because Arsene Wenger thinks Nacho Monreal is a better left back. Simple as that. There's no other reason. It's because Gibbs is deemed inferior to Monreal. But if you're serious about playing three at the back, you keep holding him that side. You don't fuck him around by leaving him out of the game against Leicester, and you don't you know, fuck the team around by leaving him out of a game against uh, Tottenham, a game that we, we just could not afford to lose. And that back, back five, you know, we talk about a back three, but in reality it's sort of a back five, isn't it? Um when the wingbacks slot yeah. in, it was not as effective as it should have been because I think Monreal is better going forward than Kieran Gibbs. He he, he links uh, he links better with Alexis. Uh, I think Holding would have been a better centre half, um, better at centre half. You know, I just I, I don't. Yeah, I didn't I didn't really understand that. I didn't understand it, and um, I was I was a bit disappointed as well to see Olivier Giroud start up front. Mm-hmm. Um, Sorry. I mean, if Spurs have a weakness or an area to exploit, it is the space in behind. And in playing Giroud there, you effectively guarantee that won't happen. I found that a really, really strange one. I thought, I thought again, when Danny Welbeck didn't start against Leicester, I had it in my mind that, well, it's to keep him fresh and ready for White Hart Lane. So... Mm. Really, I mean, we again, we know Arsene Wenger has enormous faith in Olivier Giroud, but I, I, I couldn't for the life of me understand that decision. Well, yeah, you know, again, you know, it's not really, it's not really about Giroud, is it? Because he's not picking the team. It's, um, 
No, it's the impact that a player like uh, it's an impact that a player like that has on the way that the team plays. And if you want to play fast, uh, dynamic football, then you you can't do it really with Olivier Giroud on the side. You just can't do it. Mm-hmm. And if if for example we started Danny Welbeck and we were two nil down. And then you're calling on Olivier Giroud to come on from the bench. I'd be a lot more confident that he could make an impact there. Yeah, of course. Well, and there, there are so many players I would have started ahead of Giroud in that game. I would have rather seen Welbeck start. I would have rather seen Iwobi start and play Alexis up top. Yeah, I would rather yeah. have seen El Nenny start alongside Shaka and play Ramsey in a more advanced role. I just, yeah, I didn't think it was a game for Giroud, and. It proved to be the case, didn't it? I mean, I mean, obviously he wasn't helped with masses of service, but I mean, he, he barely got a kick. He wasn't in the game. Yeah, exactly. But you know, the, if you're a centre forward and you're not getting any service, you can still impose yourself on the game in a way. He did a little bit mm. of pressing, a little bit of closing down, but there was, I think, there was a moment where, in the the start of the second half, where he moved to close down a player in in the uh, in our half, and it, it was striking that he did that. It was like, oh, God, he's moving, you know? Um, and then he sort of <laughs> slotted back into the into the centre-forward role where he sort of ambles between the two centre-halves and ambles left and ambles right, you know, as they move the ball around the back and, you know, just taking up that classic centre-forward position. But, like, what the fuck good is that to anybody? Especially in a game where it was obvious from the first half that we were, we were lucky to go in nil-nil. And they were playing an Very awful lot better I mean, it should have been 2-0, we shouldn't it? Oh, Jesus. How did, I don't know. how De- That's a, one of the misses of the season from Deli Alley. And yeah. also from Ericsson, a, a player of his quality, putting it over the bar from, from that distance. I mean, we got away with it. We got away with it. and We did. Um, the, the warning signs I were mean, there. God knows exactly. I mean, it, I mean 2-0. I think the reason... You know, 2 nil's not in itself a terrible, terrible result. But I think the reason Arsenal fans feel as guided as they do, is I think everyone watching that game knows it could well have been significantly more. Mm, thanks to Petr Cech. If it wasn't for Petr Cech, then it would have been Absolutely. more. Absolutely, He had a brilliant game. I mean, he made some incredible saves, some really great saves. Mm. Um, I suppose, isn't it just, in some ways, doesn't it sum up our season where Petr Cech has his best game for fuck, probably in, in an Arsenal shirt, and it comes in a game where we lose to Tottenham in the game that sees Tottenham finish above us for the first time in 21 years, a game in which we could have put a real dent in their title hopes. Instead, um, we allowed them to keep uh, keep that thing going. Um, yeah, to, to borrow an Arsenal phrase, that sums it all up, really. Yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. I, I, I mean, at half time, I was kind of thinking, well, look, I mean, nil nil at half time. I was happy. I, I would have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was—I would just snap your hand off with that because this was a game where, to be honest, a point would have been very welcome in my eyes. Mm. But then, of course, uh, there was the second half and the uh, the Deli Ali goal, and then the penalty. Any doubts in your mind about the penalty? Well, look, there's no doubt in my mind about what Harry Kane is doing. Uh, he's swinging that leg out and letting it catch Gabriel, but you can't go to ground like that, can you, in the penalty box? It's just too... It's too reckless. Well, he, I mean, he didn't go to ground. What he did was he just took a kick. He took a swipe at, at Kane's leg uh, as Kane pushed the ball past him. And you can see... 
you know what he was trying to do the way he was gonna the way he was gonna do it it was it was daft defending you know Kane definitely made the most of it there's no question about that the way that he sort of mm-hmm. hung out his leg and made more contact with Gabriel it's like it's a weekend of diving extravaganzas from um you know in in the Premier League um in in some of the big games but really if you kick if you, yeah, was, yeah Rashford's was was awful um but yeah. like, who gives a fuck about that? Um, <laughs> you know, you yeah. can't you can't like take a swipe at a forward like that and not expect to get punished for it because ninety nine percent of the time the referee is going to give uh, a penalty, particularly as all the strikers in the Premier League are going to make the most of that contact. Like, you think Olivier Giroud wouldn't, or or Harry Kane, or uh, Alexis Sanchez wouldn't if it happened on him? Of course they would. Um, so, you know, to, to concede two goals in what, whatever it was, two minutes, you're like, for fuck's sake. I mean, that's, you know, that's Arsenal to a T, isn't it? They go a goal down and that's when they're so <laughs> psychologically vulnerable at times, you know, that it just seems, feels like it's going to collapse. I mean, and as we said a minute ago, if it were not for Czech, from that point on, mm. it could have been a drubbing, a real drubbing. Mm. What did you make of the decision to take Granite Xhaka off for Danny Welbeck and go uh, back to a back four, which I think it just shows where the manager's priority lies when it comes to his formation. He feels happiest, he feels safest when his uh, team is playing with a back four. I don't think he trusts a back three sufficiently to stick with it. Um but I thought the the change Welbeck for Xhaka was really odd. I thought that was a very strange substitution. Yeah, it was. I mean, to be honest with you, this was a game in which I really began to lose track of the shape because I, I think the players did as well because yeah. it was shifting within the game. I couldn't tell at first where Welbeck was supposed to be playing. I'm not sure he necessarily knew. I could see discussions happening between Montreal and Gibbs about who was supposed to be where. It, you know, tactically it came apart. I think that the fact that Arsene Wenger in, in each of the last two games has switched to a back four, I think tells you really what he thinks about the back three. As for the Welbeck switch, I just, I understand leaving a goal scorer on in Olivier Giroud, but it, I mean, it was just, I was counting down the minutes till he came off because this just was not his game. And the longer he stayed on the pitch, it wasn't going to change that. Yeah, I, I just don't know why he didn't stick with uh, stick well back on for Gibbs. I mean, what what yeah. what what's the big difference there? Get an extra attacker on, keep your shape, and and have a go. Like fuck it, you're two nil down. What the fuck? They're all over us anyway. You might as well have a go. But you know, we just went conservative. Um, I think it made us worse defensively without Xhaka on the pitch. And Xhaka, whether he would have had the chance to provide some service, I don't know, but he's one of the guys, one of maybe two guys in the team who can pick out a pass who might have been able to stretch the the Tottenham defence. But yeah. Well, and taking him off for Sturzel eventually by the end of the game, deeper and deeper and deeper, which is not really the areas you want him to operate in. Mm. And uh, yeah, I thought tactically the team kind of fell apart. I mean... You know, we've seen that with Arsene Wenger in the past where it's kind of worked, he's thrown players on and we've managed to produce something sort of out of sheer talent. But as with so much of the season, there just felt like no steering, really. There felt like no real plan for how to get back into the game. Mm. At no point did I feel 
well, you know, there's a way back into this for us. I, I had so little optimism and so little hope. And watching our performance, you know, Arsene Wenger, I think, said after the game that we'd sort of dominated the last 15 minutes. It didn't feel like that to me. Oh, you know, it. no. Do you know what it felt like to me? I'll tell you exactly what it was. Tottenham were quite happy for us to have the ball because they knew we were going to do fucking nothing with it. Yeah. They knew that there was no yeah. incision, no real drive, no, uh, what fucking words am I looking for? Penetration. There was nobody making any runs. There was no movement. It was easy for them to defend against us. So they just let us have the ball. And mm-hmm. that's as damning an indictment of our football at this moment in time as you can get. Like, yeah, uh, And they can defend. So that is an option for them. And they just, we, they, they held us at arm's length. Yeah. Yeah. And that is pretty humiliating obviously for obvious reasons yeah well (laughs) it's not our most cheerful one is it but then you know we can only work with what we're given guys yeah yeah that is true we are slaves to what happens on the pitch and um i mean where 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 does where does this leave us does it leave us anywhere different than after the the palace game or after the west brom game is it because i mean it, it only does because of the semi-final that, I mean, imagine, imagine the mood and the atmosphere now had we not got through at Wembley. Mm. I mean, you know, in some ways I'm so thankful for that because it's the the one bit of respite that we've had and I think that it's the only thing keeping the club from open revolt. I mean, like, on a little scale that we've not seen yet. And I think in the club are fortunate in a way because I think the final is going to kind of act as a sticking plaster that's going to protect the manager and the team to an extent until the end of the season because I don't think supporters are ready to kind of turn their backs on a team who have a final on the horizon. You no, know? no, I, I, I agree. And I don't think um, I don't think that, that should happen. But I do worry seriously that the the way we're playing at this moment in time the lack of confidence, the lack of belief, the lack of any coherent system, the lack of any fluidity to our football, the the uh, the the way these players must be feeling, the way the manager's not able to get anything from the players, and you look at the fixtures that we've got, we've got Manchester United on Sunday, we've got to go to Stoke, we've got to go to Southampton. Southampton in between. I mean, the, the next three fixtures are very hard. United at home, Southampton away, Stoke away. I mean, It's very difficult to approach any of those games with any confidence. Of course, of course. So I, I think, for, for the most part, people, of course, will want to be behind the team and be behind the players when it comes to the cup final. They, they Of course they do. But what happens between now and the cup final may have a significant impact on on everything else. I mean, I don't think it's a case that um, you know, even if we lose every game between now and the cup final, people are going to go to the cup final and they're going to support their team. They're going to be behind the team 100 percent for the for the 90 minutes. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think uh, that the build up to the game w- will see fans be as supportive as they can be, knowing that this is a chance to win a trophy. But, yeah, I think you're right. If we'd lost the semi-final, I think things would be an an awful lot worse now. I think there'd be, I don't know what there'd be, but I don't know, I don't know what there would be left for anybody at the football club to cling on to. But then we don't know what any, anybody at the football club thinks anyway, because nobody is saying a word to us. Nobody. Here we are again, and nobody's, nobody's bothered to say a word. No. 
No. I mean, the funny thing about yesterday's result is that it actually came on a day where other results went in our favour. Yeah. I mean, Manchester United uh, dropped points at home, which was a, a bit of a shock, and then Manchester City to Middlesbrough as well, dropping a couple of points. Do you think... Do you think the top four is gone now? Yeah. No chance. Do you? No chance. Well, how? How? I mean... I just don't see wh- where they're going to find what it takes to to win the games and get the points that they need. The way they're playing, the way they're being set up, the way they're being coached or managed. I just don't... What What can change now that hasn't changed, that we couldn't change three weeks ago or six weeks ago. Arsene spoke the other week about like how we were we were devastated because of the the Champions League exit. It's like what? What are you talking about? What just fucking get on with it. And you made a point a while ago that he's a man who talks almost exclusively about confidence and belief and mentality and mental strength and and the psychological aspect of the game. And I don't think the players believe what they're hearing anymore. I mean, we don't know what he says. We don't know what he says on the training ground, of course. But you can't imagine it's much different from what he talks about in public when he talks at his press conferences or post-game interviews or the, you know, the interviews he does with Sky before the games. And, you know, we have to have the confidence to play the football that we need to play. You know, we're not quite mentally ready to be able to play that way. And it's like, no, come on. You know, what... I mean, when he first started doing it, I, I, and it really sort of began happening about 10 years ago, I, I felt like it was a bit of a... He was attempting a confidence trick, really. He was trying to convince his players that they had this belief and this quality and that they were as good as he needed them to be because he had a team full of people like Nicholas Bentner and Alex Song and, you know, a team that wasn't really up to scratch and yet he was kind of imbuing them with this false sense of confidence that helped Mm. them get over the line. And I feel like over the years, it's just become a mantra that has really ceased to have any meaning, really. And I think almost probably at the expense of some focus on technical issues or tactical issues or things that could more tangibly improve the team. Mm. Um, and, now, and you know, I mean, now it, it just washes over you, doesn't it? I mean, I just don't believe... I, I, I almost am at the point... I mean, for professional reasons, I do, but the press conferences have become almost redundant because he's just trotting out the same stuff that's clearly bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's nothing that we've learned from anything that he said in recent weeks about why his team are underperforming uh, and why he's unable to get his team to play to the level that that he wants them to play at. But I think I don't think this is, I don't think this is something new though. I think this is something that has been setting in for maybe a couple of seasons, the way that we've been playing. Um that the inability to operate without uh, Santi Cazorla, for example, becomes a big, huge issue for us. I mean, what one guy can't be that important to the way that we play. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, he's an exceptional player, but he's almost a player who's so good that he allows you to bypass actual solutions. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. he, he's a cheap player. He is yeah. a cheap player. <laughs> he solves problems by his mere 
brilliance. Uh, you know, when when every single player who's asked about who the most skillful person on the training ground is, who's the most technically accomplished, and every single Arsenal player without fail says Santi Cazorla in a squad that includes Meza Ozil, Alexis Sanchez, you know, people of that ability, you know you've got something pretty special. And ultimately, someone like that will dig you out of holes, but eventually you're going to have to find another way to cope. Mm. And we have been completely unable to. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, Arsenal used to be, whether we were winning games or whether we were psychologically a bit brittle. Is it raining there? It's hail. Hang on, I've just got the window slightly open. Hailstones? No way. Hailstones, I know. Um, it's really heavy. Wow. Right. Uh... It'll still clatter a bit. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a beautiful it, day. It is here. a miserable day it's in every respect. It's oh, beautiful. Please for you. Um, <laughs> but what I was going to say was that, like, even, you know, you talked about the teams like Bentner and Abue and Song and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. And at least there seemed to be a defiant style with them. That the, 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 the last two seasons, whatever Arsenal's style has been under Arsene Wenger is gone. It's. I don't yeah. know where it's. I don't know where it is. I don't quite know why it's happened. But he 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 doesn't seem capable of getting his players to play the way he wants them to play. Well, isn't it tragic in a way that you know Arsene Wenger's greatest legacy? It was always talked about how what he'd given Arsenal was this footballing identity and this swagger and this sense of style. And and the mm. thought was always that you know the next manager would probably have to follow in that footstep. Some coaches wouldn't be suitable because they don't play that type of football. And yet we're looking at teams coached by Arsene Wenger that don't look like Arsene Wenger teams. They mm. don't look like Arsenal teams. Um, and, and I've read a lot this season about the players and how Arsenal's players just aren't good enough and things like that. And that's just not something I subscribe to because I remember those teams of the early years at the Emirates Stadium. I remember the teams with Danielson in you know, mm. that managed to make the top four and f flirted with title challenges, but mo at moreover played with a sense of identity and a sense of adherence to some kind of plan. Yeah. Um, and that's gone. Yeah. That is gone now. But, you know, that was a long time ago. <laughs> it was, it was. You know, Danielson, a man who was overtaken by a referee at one point. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, um, it can only come down to one thing and to one man. And, that, and that's Arsene Wenger. And, you know, you, you, uh, you talk about the players, and I think, I think there's a good case to be made for some of them being moved on this summer, absolutely. But I also mm. think that a new manager might be able to get more from, from these players. Um, yeah, I, I think it's more a problem of culture than a problem of ability. Mm. And, and I, I do think the solution to that probably involves moving people on because... That needs to be shaken up. Yeah, I mean, you can't say that it's because we don't spend money anymore. It's not the case. That's absolutely and, and completely not the case. You know, we've smashed our transfer re uh, transfer record a few times. You know, Alexis has come in uh, for thirty five million. Jack at thirty five million. Mustafi thirty five million. Mesedos of forty two million. You know, we spent twelve million on Gabriel El Nani, Petr Cech, Lucas Perez seventeen million pounds. I can't remember who the fuck else has come in over the last couple of years. But you know, we have spent a significant amount of money and it's not because we don't spend money anymore that was the thing that was the thing that people held on to it's because we we don't have the resources because we don't have the ability to compete in the transfer market but that's that's not the case it's not the case well, we're spending more money than spurs a lot certainly. more a lot more yeah 
we spend mo- less money on wages and or more money on wages and more money on transfers. But they are yeah. a team that look like greater than the sum of its parts, I guess you'd say. And we we are pretty much the opposite. Mm. Mm. We are we are significantly less than the sum of our parts. Certainly this mm. season. Will we? Um, is this is this? Uh, <laughs> I was asked to write a piece. Uh, about the, the 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 most painful seasons of Arsene Wenger's reign, do you think this season is, you know, making a bid for number one thus far? Mm. Maybe, but I think you know, two thousand seven, two thousand and eight was really painful yeah. because yeah. we we really should have won the league. Last season was painful because I think we had a great chance. To win the league, I think in its own way, yeah. I think 2013-14, when we started really, really well. Do you remember? I think we lost the opening game against Aston Villa, and then we went on a tremendous winning run. We were top of the table at the second half of the season. We fell apart. So I think those for me have been well. Again, you know, you look at this one. Maybe it is up there, but I think there are others that are a bit more painful. This one feels like. What does it feel like? It feels like something that you fear is going to happen has finally happened. There feels like an inevitability to this, that mm. there's there's no way back. Um, there's no putting it but, right with the with the current structures. The, the, the trouble is that things like that, sometimes it's like you, there's inevitability about it. And yeah, I guess things have to get, so you have to hit rock bottom before it gets better you know it's, it's kind of the adage mm. but uh, is it is this rock bottom is it going to change because uh, that's the concern right that as, as frightening as it is now looking forward it's very difficult to be optimistic because as, as our friend ivan would say that there, there doesn't seem to be any kind of catalyst for change then <laughs> you know what i mean <sighs> catalyst for change Fuck me. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's it's what I said in the blog today, is that the, the club seems more likely to continue down this same road, the road that we're on at this moment in time, with a manager who can't properly build a team, who can't get his team to play football, who can't motivate his team for, for a derby, who underperform, who can't win games away from home against the big opposition, who... Uh, who are getting worse? Let's face it. This is this is probably going to be our worst points total in a, a long time after spending more money than we have ever before. Uh, you know, over the last number of seasons, this is a team that's in decline, despite what we try and do to it. And the club seems still willing to go down that road and to give him uh, another deal, which is uh, absurd. But the other thing that that frightens me is that the people who are supposed to be making these decisions are, are, well, you know, maybe I'm wrong to call them inept. But, you know, how can you have any confidence in any of them? How can we have any confidence in Ivan Gazidis if Arsene Wenger's contract is not renewed to go out and rebuild the the footballing side of this football club because he's a lawyer he dealt with player contracts he's been in the game but like really who is there who is going to rebuild who is going to come in and say like what we need to find is a fucking genius 
we need to find some young manager who's an absolute fucking genius who come in and look at this football club and say, right, we need to overhaul scouting. We need to overhaul uh, the director of football thing. We need to overhaul recruitment. We need to, you know, the guy who's, we need this Dick Law guy. No, let's get someone who could attract players to the club, who won't fucking miss planes and all that kind of stuff. You know, that is what we need. I don't trust Ivan Gazidis or Stan Kroenke or Josh fucking Kroenke to make any of those decisions and to make the right decisions. So while I think we absolutely need a brand, a new manager, it's imperative, I think. It's impossible not to be anything other than terrified at the prospect of those people trying to figure out what a, how to f- solve this fucking mess. It's, it is scary, but do you think we're at the point where, whilst appointing the perfect guy might be beyond those people... Appointing someone who can do a better job maybe isn't that hard. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I don't know who the fuck who do, who do they bring in. I do, I just don't know. I don't know. It really depends on on who I mean, they can bring in. Yeah, and obviously, you know, the longer it's dragged on, the more difficult it becomes. Mm. Right? I mean, you know, there was all the chat about Allegri. He's now agreed a new deal with Juventus. It, it, when you dawdle, options get taken off the table. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, I, look, I don't know. I, I really just don't know, and I'm at my wit's end trying to figure any of it out, but um, I, I feel like... I feel like we're heading for a really turbulent time, I think, um, whether that's with Arsene Wenger or without Arsene Wenger. I feel like it, I, uh, it, yeah. you know it 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 doesn't feel uh it feels very unstable which is <laughs> ironic because the idea of keeping us in has been to promote this concept of stability mm. but if he stays it'll be as rocky as as rocky as anything I yeah. can remember maybe maybe that's the option though maybe that's what it is maybe we have to appoint a new football manager and see what happens but that doesn't seem to me like a very doesn't seem to me like the ideal way to run a, a fucking football club the size of Arsenal. Let's well, let's do it because well, you know what else is there? You know that that's that, that this is part of the problem for me that there is no strategy, there's no plan, there's no there's no future proofing. There's there doesn't seem to be anybody who who has got any real idea how to make this thing happen and happen in the best way. I, I agree with that. And I think that, you know, you would love to think there was some kind of long-term planning or, or strategy underpinning everything at the club. But isn't another criticism of Arsenal's behaviour in recent years that they don't necessarily act with enough ambition? They don't necessarily gamble enough. And isn't this a gamble on behalf of the board that kind of has to be taken, really. And isn't that there a bit of courage and a bit of conviction just in making that decision, at least? Yeah, maybe that's maybe that's what we'll see. And maybe we're doing them a disservice and maybe they'll appoint a great man and maybe things will turn around and maybe all the players will start playing together and maybe we'll win games again and maybe we'll learn how to defend and maybe we'll score goals and maybe we might win the title. Maybe. It's a big maybe, eh? <laughs> <laughs> it is many, many maybes. Look, I think we um, we better take a little break here and come back and do uh, part two and some questions right after this.
hand if you'd like to bid farewell to 2020. Now, use that same hand to celebrate the new year with Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly lets you compare prices from local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your door in under 60 minutes. And right now, Drizzly is giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code NEWYOU at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. This holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. Part two of the show is where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog and also on the Arsblog Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog. And uh, I'm going to say thanks to everyone who's listening. If you've got through that first 45 minutes, it wasn't the most yeah. uh, cheery. But hey, as we said, we're, uh, we're slaves to what happens on the pitch. Um, we did the... Uh, we did the predictions, remember? So just to quickly touch on our predictions, uh, you had Leicester down as a win. I had Leicester mm-hmm. down as a, a draw. So um, there you go. And uh, Spurs... Yeah, and then Spurs, what did we have? Yeah, draw. I had draw. And then I think I might, I might have foolishly changed it for a win. So Wow. Yeah. Feeling optimistic you were at that point. I don't know what I was thinking there, but... Um, um, to be honest, even a draw feels optimistic. Now nah, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Well, look, there you go. So uh, the next, uh, the next game is Manchester United, United. and uh, I, I have predicted a defeat in that game, and you've predicted a draw. So maybe just I'm so terrible at this, I could, I could get it right. Um, but I, you know, I'm not sure it works well, like hope. that. <laughs> Let's hope we're both wrong, but uh, yeah, not particularly confident. All right. Um, Should we have a question? Mm, Why not? Okay, let's do it. I tell you what, this is a bit cheeky of me. I've pilfered this. So, Ask Blog columnist Tim Stillman wrote this question on Twitter. He didn't aim it at the Ask Us Extra, but I'm I'm having it anyway because I thought it was interesting. And he wrote, he said, uncomfortable question, which current Premier League managers would have done worse with this squad than Arsene this season. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, it's that's really difficult. That's really difficult. <laughs> I mean, David Moyes, obviously. <laughs> that, yeah, I mean, everybody's everybody's saying David Moyes, and I think there's that we're probably all uh, we're probably all agreed on that. It's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because it it sort of becomes a question of. I think the reason it's interesting, it touches on the idea of, is it about the manager's ability, you know, his kind of sagacity almost, or is it just the case that Arsene and this squad at this point is an unhealthy marriage, you know? I think that's what it could be. I think that's what it could be. You know, I think there's... I think it's just gone stale. I think that's what it is, you know... New players that come in, they talk about Arsene Wenger and, you know, how what his reputation is like and how great it's going to be for them to to work under him. Um, but, you know, it's difficult to think of a player that's come in under Arsene Wenger 
and really improved in the last few years, isn't it? Yeah. And even, even the, the young players. Yeah, exactly. You, you know, know you th- your Bellerins, your Awobis, your guys who show, Coquelin and even, your guys who show a lot of promise in their first few appearances have tended to regress a little, haven't they, the longer they've remained in the team? Yeah, I mean, you look at somebody like Mesut Ozil, for example, who, when he came to the club, people were dancing in the streets because he was uh, such a talented... Yeah. Literally, he was such a talented player, or a genuinely world-class player, a playmaker with real vision... And I think he's got worse under Arsene Wenger. I don't think he's mm. he's developed. He's he's headed into his peak years and declined in terms of the impact he makes. Now I'm not, I'm not saying it's just on him. You know, I think w- uh, uh, when a team is playing well, it's easier for um, an individual to play well. And the team hasn't played well for such a long time that I think the knock-on effects of that, you know, are, are part of it. But I don't think that Mesut Ozil has developed as a player under Arsene Wenger the way we would have expected or the way we would have liked. Um, Alexis Sanchez, Alexis is always going to be a, a high-impact player, but very much an individualist. That the, the problems that he had at Barcelona, where they felt he was too wasteful, maybe not smart enough as a player you were hoping that Arsene Wenger might be able to fix those things. And he hasn't been able to do it. Young players with real talent who've come through the system, you know, Oxlade-Chamberlain, Aaron Ramsey, um, they haven't developed. Jack Wilshire. Jack Wilshire. Now, there are other issues, of course, with Jack Wilshire. Theo Walcott. You know, so I I can't remember what the the point of this uh, question was, but I think that... You know, as a manager, his ability to get more out of players, his ability to coach them and to uh, develop them as footballers, to develop their talents and qualities, I think is very much, very obviously on the wane. And you do wonder maybe if that's part and parcel of of the fact that the, the, the team itself isn't performing, that he's not getting more out of players. He's not getting that extra 10% or 5% out of players who can then make a difference in a game. In some cases, he's getting less out of them, and, and then, then it's no wonder that we're not winning or, or that results are, are, are poor and performances are poor. Mm. Yeah. And I, and I think in answer to this question, when you look at the league table, so many coaches probably would have fared better purely based on the fact that it would eradicate that that feeling of sterility that well, exists around yeah, the club. Maybe, I don't know. I mean, look, I, I I think that there's a lot of managers at Premier League clubs who are managers of mid-table teams because that's their level. Because maybe they wouldn't be able to deal with a club the size of Arsenal, the pressure at a club like Arsenal. You know, let's, let's not just restrict it to the... To the um, to the players, you know, there are other things that are involved when you're managing a football club, when you're managing a football club like Arsenal. But when you look at maybe the top five or six managers or the managers Mm. that are in the top five or six clubs, like if you ask me, would we be doing this badly with those players under Pep Guardiola? I don't think there's any way. I think we'd be, we'd be there or thereabouts. I think. I mean, I think, look, I don't like saying it, but I think if you give Mauricio Pochettino this Arsenal squad, I think he probably wins the league. Uh, at least he'll run Chelsea very, very close. Mm. Very, very close. Uh, 
I mean, it's hypotheticals, isn't it? It's yeah. hypotheticals, but it's it, it, it does kind of illustrate, I guess, some of the some of the problems really. And I think that thing about this being the wrong manager for this squad at this time, I think that's the crux of it, really, mm. isn't it? I think so. I think so. All right, here's a question from Billy Pete, who's at BP underscore fourteen seven eight nine, and he wants to know: realistically, if offered twenty million for Olivier Giroud, would you take it? And who else should go this summer? Twenty million for Olivier Giroud. Um, do you know what? I, I actually, ooh, despite being firmly in the camp of not wanting to see Giroud start too many games, I, I really like having him in the squad because I think. He's relatively unique. There aren't that many target men who are as capable as him. So good in the air, uh, you know, and a, a much better finisher than he's given credit for. I think in his early days he did miss a lot of chances, but last couple of seasons he's been, uh, you know, relatively clinical. So I, I would want to keep him because I think it's hard to re- hard to replace him like for like, and I think he does give you that different option. Um, I guess the case for selling him is if you're kind of going to rip up the attacking formula and start again, which we may well have to do this summer. But I kind of think that you're not going to get loads of money for him. And I kind of think, I'd, I'd, given that he's recently signed a new deal, I'd keep him around. I think mm. he's got a couple more years of effectiveness as that impact sub player. What about you? Sell him in a fucking heartbeat. Would you? Yeah. Because I know you like him. I do player. like him. I'm just tired of him now. I'm tired of what he yeah. represents in a way. And I, I agree with you completely. I think he's a better player than he's been given credit for. I don't think he should be a starter. I think the fact that he was our starting striker for four years is is more uh, reflects more on the manager and the recruitment uh, at this football club than it does on Olivier Giroud. And he, you know, he's a solid. If he starts that many games, he'll get you twenty goals a season, and that's not a bad thing. He's a good player. He's a good striker on his day. But I think at this point. He represents something that I no longer want to see at Arsenal. I think he's easy to play against. I think defenders in the Premier League have pretty much got him sussed out. I don't think he's working as hard as he might. I'm not sure he's as happy as he says he is. I don't know why he signed a new deal. I don't know why we gave him a new deal. And if someone came along with £20 million for him, I would absolutely take it. Absolutely. So thank you very much, Olivier. You've scored some brilliant goals. Someone will put together a highlight video of all your goals. I don't know how many goals he scored for Arsenal. It must be 80 or 90 goals at this point. Uh, someone yeah. will put it together over some dreadful Euro trash dance pop piece of shit that you wouldn't play in the worst nightclub in fucking Magaluf. And we'll go, wow, he scored some fucking good goals, that guy. But I'd still get rid of him. <laughs> And watch him sail off into the sunset. I mean, I think it's plausible that he goes. You know, if Marseille are interested, and they do seem to be uh, pursuing a couple of high-profile players in England. They've already took Payet back in January. Mm. I think it's plausible that he goes. I just think... I, I, I maintain that Arsenal have suffered in the past from not having someone who could come off the bench and be that penalty box player. And I think he's still a decent option but I don't think he should be anywhere near the starting eleven. I would sell him to make sure Arsene Wenger stops starting him. Well, that's the Let's thing. Is, like yeah, that. isn't the thing that if he's there in the squad, there will be a period where he's starting games and he might be effective for a few games, but ultimately it becomes, it's sort of, 
you know, everyone knows how you're going to play. You know how to defend against him. Even you know, uh, lower teams lower down the league know how to defend against him, uh, unless he does something absolutely wonderful. You know, you think of the uh, the the scorpion goal against Crystal Palace. I mean, an amazing amazing goal, but you know, a piece of skill that he's not going to do again in his career. Um, so that's that's the thing. As long as Arsene Wenger is at the club and as, as long as Olivier Giroud are at the club, there is going to be a period where he's starting games. And that is something that I don't want to, I don't want to see because I think it's, it, it's, uh, it's not good for the way that we want to play football. Oh, I, I mean, I concur with that. I mean, there was a second part of the question, wasn't there, about was it who else would... Who else? Who else would go? <sighs> I mean, where do you start? <laughs> um, I mean, the biggest problem we face in terms of uh, the building of our squad is, is the players that we might lose that we don't want to lose. I think that's, mm. you know, and, and people talk about top four and, you know, do we want to be in there or not? I do think that the probably the, the, the most important thing about the top four is that it might enable us to mount a greater case to keep someone like Alexis Sanchez. Um, in terms of players who I think should be shipped out... I mean, he's had a very good season, but if Theo Walcott can score 20 goals and still not really be in the team at this stage of the season, I think that speaks volumes. Mm. If the manager still, at the time when he's got his back to the wall, doesn't really find a place for him, uh, I think I think that that could lead to something happening there. I think, obviously, the central midfield needs to be addressed, so I think you know they'll be looking at, Jack Wilshere, they'll be looking at Aaron Ramsey, they'll be looking at Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain and trying to work out who they're going, which which basket to put their eggs in. Um, and then after that, you're looking at fringe players, aren't you? I mean, we've talked about Kieran Gibbs. I think his time with the club is surely coming to a close. Cole Jenkinson, Matthew Debushi. Um But I don't think it's going to be drastic. I don't think it's going to be like, you know, 10 players out the door or anything like that. No. Do you? No. No, regardless of what happens, it's not going to be yeah. that many. But, you know, there are situations where that have to be sorted out in terms of contracts. Wilshire, Gibbs, Oxlade-Chamberlain, Ozil, Sanchez, uh, Chesney. These players have got one year left on their contracts. You can talk all you want about, oh, we'll keep them. We'll keep players for the final year of their contract. But that's, that's not the reality of a, a contract situation when you get to it. You know, uh, at Arsenal or any other club, and particularly at Arsenal, where we have we have history of of selling those players. So um, no, I mean, I I have to say, I, I'm finding it quite maddening. Arsenal's line at the moment about I don't understand why there is discussion about the contracts of Arsenal and Alexis. They have more than twelve months to run. It's like, well, if this Minazri, Cesc Fabregas, Robin van Persie. See, Gail Clichy, so many, Alex Song, so many Arsenal players who've been in that position and subsequently sold. Yeah. You know, Adebayor, I think, was another one. If that hadn't happened, then maybe he would have a point. But of course, we all know the decision the club really faces this summer is get them to sign or they will go. We, yeah. It's just there's too much precedent. Yeah. Um, on the subject of players, Noah Reich or Reach on Twitter at Noah C. Reach asks, are there any players in our squad who you really love and will look back on fondly in the future? Um, yeah, Mertesacker. I love, love yeah. Mertesacker. Um, 
And what is it about? Is it is it the values, I guess, that he carries? The yeah, look, I can identify with him as a relatively slow centre-half, I guess. That would be the first mm. thing. <laughs> um, I, I just like that at a time where we worry about players being mercenaries or not understanding what it is to be an Arsenal fan, etc., etc., you know, I don't... I, I feel like he always got it. You know, he always understood. Uh, I think as well... He and Arteta had a big, big impact on this football club when they came in 2011. They, they, um, they were so unbelievably important. And people want to slag off Arteta for going to Manchester City or slag off Arteta for um, the last season and a half maybe he had where he was injured all the time. But between him and Mertesacker, they had such a big impact. They were so important uh, to steady the ship. Um and I just like him. I think he's a funny guy. He he gets what it means to be uh, an Arsenal player. We don't know quite whether that reflects in uh, you know him as Arsenal captain because of his injury. We haven't seen him, which is uh, unfortunate. Um, beyond that, maybe Santi Cazorla. Yes, of course, of course. Um, that goes without saying. That goes without saying. Santa, yes. Uh, I, I like Hector I, I, Bellerin as well. I like Nacho Monreal. But I think the question was love, you know. Um, you know, I don't think they're all assholes or anything. They just annoy the shit out of me. Yeah. As a collective. Yeah. Some of them individually. Um, but, yeah, what, what about you? Santi's a good shout simply because I mean he's so lovable in every respect and I guess also because his injuries have coincided with our periods of terrible form over the past couple of years I guess that spared him a, a little in my eyes um, you know I think I I do I, I would say that I will look back really fondly on Alexis's time at Arsenal and his performances I, as frustrating as he's been in some respects it's impossible not to love his enthusiasm and his hunger and sure. his sheer ability everyone loves a goal scorer as well you know mm. um, so I, I felt like it's been a privilege to watch Alexis play for Arsenal at times but I mean I, mean, I guess the, the point that the question is kind of implying is that you know I think great teams forge those relationships you know you look back at players who probably weren't as capable as some of these players but were involved in title winning sides in 98 or 2002 they're all squad members in the Invincibles you know fringe players really I remembered so fondly uh, because of what they contributed and because we haven't necessarily had a team with that kind of sustained success or because they've frustrated on so many occasions you know Aaron Ramsey is a guy who won the FA Cup for us in 2014, capping a brilliant comeback story from this kid who broke his leg and transformed into this outstanding midfield player and, you know, literally was the hero at Wembley, won the Cup. And yet his overriding reputation among Arsenal fans is as a, a player who is frustrating and, you know, as a, kind of an unfulfilled talent. And it's because even the good moments, I guess, have been undercut by so many disappointments. Mm. Um and that's, I suppose, you know, damaged the way certain fans feel about certain players. There are a few in there, but you're right, they're, they're not bad eggs. This isn't a squad full of Bentners and Abues and people who, you know, you think these guys... They're, they're like, they're taking, a, yeah, they're taking advantage or they're you, taking it for granted in a way. Exactly. I don't feel like that. I feel like there are 
people in there who apply themselves and who who want to do well, but for whatever reason, it's just it's just not happening. Here's a question from Selbridge Gooner, who says, "Is there any way that the Arsenal fan base can make a coordinated protest that the Arsenal board will listen to?" A few questions like this. Uh, yeah, there's been quite a lot. Really. Yeah. Uh, well, we all know what what that protest is, and it and it's a financial one. It's one. I guess it's it's about not going to games, isn't it? Not renewing season tickets. Mm. I mean, I think that's the only thing. But we've said spoken about this so many times. People love going to football matches. Why should they? have to not, you know? Of course. You know, I don't think it's something that you can ever ask of anybody. You know, you can't tell someone not to go and support their football team or go watch a game of football because maybe it's the only thing they've, uh, you know, they've got apart from work and family and kids. It's their, you know, this is their their leisure time. When it comes right down to it, it is th- their leisure time. Um, whether it's driving them fucking mental at the moment, they might question whether or not it's, <laughs> it's worth it. But, you know, I think that's what it is. I think Sunday is going to be really interesting in terms of how many seats are going to be filled at the Emirates for a game against Manchester United. Well, I was startled, actually, how many empty seats there were for the Leicester game, um, simply because we'd won the Cup semi-final at the weekend, and I thought, you know, maybe after that there would be a lot of uptake, but I can't remember a Premier League match with so many empty seats, genuinely. Mm-hmm. It was striking. And I think maybe that trend will continue. I mean, and, and this is a big game this weekend. You know, it's a bit of a different kettle of fish. It's not a weeknight. It's a, a big opponent. It's Jose Mourinho coming to the Emirates Stadium. <laughs> By all rights, it should be backed out, you know? Oh, uh, yeah. I'm dreading that game. I mean, what do you... What, yeah, it's not going to be fun. I mean... I mean, t- uh, the, the the one consolation is that Mourinho will probably con- be content to come and take a point, you know, and he might just set out his stuff for that. He might just be incredibly boring. <laughs> um, we might do that that thing we do where we're trying to stabilise and we're a bit conservative. It might be incredibly dull. I mean, in a yeah. way... <laughs> um, what do you think about the concerted fan protest? Because there are so many supporters now who are so dissatisfied and who don't know how best to voice that. And, I, and, and you know, I'm not looking to you or, and, and they're not looking to me. But, you know, we, we don't know, you know, you and I, we don't know what the best course of action is. But what, what, would you, what, what will you do? Is there anything that you would consider doing? That's a really good question. I don't know. Someone asked me the, or today, is like, how the fuck do you keep doing it? How do you keep writing about it? And I don't, you know, I don't have an answer for that other than it is... It's just what I do. And I, you know, I, because I'm, I'm a little bit detached in a way, I write about the football club, but I do it from distance. So I'm not necessarily, uh, there on the, on the ground, I guess you would say. The front line. The front line, you know, so I don't feel like it's my place to tell anybody what they should and shouldn't do. If people want to protest, they can protest. They don't want to protest. They don't have to, you know, I'm, I'm, I just, I yeah. just, I just don't know what will make any difference. That's the thing. I don't know what is going to make any difference to this board and to, and to the manager. I, I, I just feel well, like fans have been really let down by the club over the last few months, by the football club itself. 
It's interesting timing, isn't it? There's the FA Cup final, and then a few days later, there's the uh, season ticket renewed deadline. And it will be so interesting to see how the club behave around that period in terms of how they communicate with fans. Mm. Because, you know, at the end of the day, their their business is filling that stadium. And that, and they, well, I mean, their business really is TV, but you know, they need that stadium to be full for the reputation of the club. And, and, uh, it'd be interesting to see how they exactly go about doing that for next season. But I, it's kind of, you know, the renewals, I think, are a bigger deal than anything that happens this season because the ticket paid for, you know, the season tickets are all paid for, yeah, uh, for, the, for the remainder of this season. That money's in the bank for Arsenal. So, and look, I don't know how yeah, much it can hurt them. I mean, they're not going to have a. There's a waiting list. We know there's a waiting list. I think they they completely overstate the amount of people that are on that waiting list. I don't think it's as endless or as bottomless as they would like uh, people to believe. Anecdotally, people are being called up from way, way down the list, being told that they may be offered a season ticket. You know, um, yeah. so I think that that really is the only. It's the most effective protest is empty seats, people not going. Um, but that that that's a form of protest where people feel like there's nothing left to them. That's their last resort is to is to just not go, is to give up, is to stop supporting the club that they've supported for for many years. And you know that that doesn't sit right with me either. That that people should be driven to that point. Um, I mean, the, the infuriating thing is that it shouldn't need to come to that, should it? The, the the board should have a barometer of feeling among the fans without us having to have an empty stadium when we play Manchester United on Sunday. You mm. know, it, it's ludicrous that it's at this point. Yeah. Um, I mean, let's say, let's say that happens. Let's say, I mean, it won't, and I don't necessarily think it should, of course, but let's say there was a concerted effort and people didn't attend a Premier League game. Do you think that would change anything in the direction or the management of the club? I don't know. I, I genuinely yeah, I see know. I just don't I just don't know. We how can we know? We don't know what the board are thinking. We don't know what the manager's thinking. We don't know what the owner's thinking. We don't know what the chief executive is thinking. Because nobody is telling us anything. Nobody is saying anything. All we can do is judge them by their actions. And so far, their actions have been to fucking sit in their hands, to hide away in the boardroom, pick up two million a year for doing what? What exactly? And that that's my fear. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say it would go unnoticed. Of course it wouldn't. But when it comes right down to it, what will they do? Some war chest stories, you know, few signings in the summer. People get excited again bit of social media bants, and everyone's happy, you know? Same old, same old. Same old, same old. So I, I don't, I really, I just don't know. I'd love to say I had the answer. I'd love to say this is something that will work. This will bring about change. This will help make the football club better. But I just don't have any belief that anything will change anything. That decision, that what, whatever has to change, it has to be a decision made at the top of the club. They don't appear willing or able to do that at this moment in time. Well, guys, that decision will be made mutually and communicated to us at the appropriate time. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. Uh, right. Well, 
look, let's have a question. This is from Mark Nellis. I was interested by this. He said, Mark said, um, is there anything we could have done differently transfer-wise last summer or was it already broken beyond repair? Um, we needed centre-half, we got a centre-half. We needed midfielder, we got a midfielder. We needed a striker, we got a striker. I think what could have been done differently is the timing of the deals, of course, that mm. uh, Mustafi and uh, Perez came in way too late. Uh, I think that, you know, had they been able to settle in a bit better, then maybe things would have gone better in that front. But I don't, again, I, I come back to the to the belief that it's not about the money that we've spent or money that we will spend in the future. You know, we could go out and spend 90 million, 120 million this summer, and I, I wouldn't feel confident that the issues that we have as a football team would be fixed. No, I, I, that's it. I mean, I don't think Mustafi or Shaka have performed as well as I would have hoped, but I'm not sure to what extent I blame them individually for that. Yeah. Um, I think they're probably both wondering what the fuck they've walked into. <laughs> uh, and as for Lucas, as for Lucas Perez, um, I suppose what I would say is, while I like him and I think he should have been granted more opportunities, if Arsene had doubts about him, then he should have bought someone he had more conviction about. Do you know what I mean? Like I feel like if they were out there, which I know is not necessarily easy. Yeah. Did you see the story? Um, when did we run this story? Let me just get it up here if I can find it. We had it on uh, on Arsblog News, and Arsene Wenger was talking about um, the scouting. He said we need to improve our scouting. Hang on, let me just see. Oh no, I haven't seen this. Yeah, we have to improve our scouting. Uh, he was talking to a French uh, TV uh, channel called SFR. Ah, yeah. And here's what he said. Um, where the fuck is it gone? Okay. <laughs> he says, um, I think there are things that won't change. We'll only spend the money we have. We can probably improve the results of younger teams, but also improve our scouting. When you mention Mbappe, maybe we can have him when he's younger. We have to improve in this area because Griezmann, Kante, we could have signed them but we missed the opportunity to do so, not necessarily because of our financial restrictions, but because we weren't rapid enough. That is something that we must improve, to sign young players before they become stars, because at that moment, all the clubs know them and want to sign them. Isn't that something? That's interesting, isn't it? That's very interesting. I mean, the, uh, the Mbappe case is... In, is uh Fascinating in itself because rarely do you hear Arsene Wenger be so public about his admiration for a player and even people close to Arsene like Robert Perez are, are not exactly keeping it a secret that we have been interested and were interested in him. I guess the thing is if... It, I don't know. But, don't know. He's, but it's his scouting fucking team. You know, there have been issues with the scouting yeah. side of our, our football club for a long time. Not just when we missed on Kante and not when we missed on Griezmann or missing out on Mbappe, there have been big issues with the scouting side of, of things for, for quite a number of years. Um, mm. And Arsene Wenger has the ability and the power to do something about it, or certainly did have the ability to do something about it a long time ago. There was the whole, remember the thing with Juan Mata? 
uh, when we were about yeah. to sign him. And for whatever reason, he turned it down and there was a big row with one of the scouts and I don't quite know the ins and outs of it, but it, it was it, it was blamed. There was a, a, a an issue between the scouting department and the manager. And I think there are also issues within the scouting department itself, that there are maybe factions in there that don't work together as well as they should. Now, Juan Mata signed for Chelsea when? 2001? Let me just have oh, a look. I think it's later than that. Uh, oh, not 2001. Months. Sorry, 2010, I think. Uh, 2011, it 2011. was. 2011. That's six years ago. There were issues with our yeah. scouts then. There have been issues with our scouts ever since. And you cannot now turn around having ignored the problem for six years and say we need to improve our scouting. These are the sort of things that I think are, are part of the problem. That people talk about, well, Arsene Wenger, you can't give him a director of football because he wants control over everything. But part of that control is not doing things, is avoiding the confrontations. It's avoiding making difficult decisions. It's avoiding shaking up your coaching staff. When you've got, let's say, a goalkeeping coach who one of our previous goalkeepers absolutely refused to work with, who then went to a different Premier League club and took one of our other goalkeeping coaches with him. That's been a problem for a long time. But again, yeah. nothing has been done about it. So this this idea that Arsenal, he does have the control, but part of that is manifested in him just not doing anything. By not just avoiding conflict, avoiding difficult decisions because he doesn't like it. Yeah. Uh and coming back to the original question, I think that the transfer activity last summer, I think if anything shows that, I, I don't think there is, I think obviously, you know, you can always do better in the transfer market, but I think the fact that we went out and spent so much money and are still experiencing so many problems just underlines that the the issues at the club run much deeper mm. than uh, the nature of the signings. Um, okay, we're gonna have, we're gonna have one more. Yeah, I think one more because we've yeah. uh, this is a bit of an epic. Uh, so to, to try and finish on a bit of a positive note, uh, H Blake Edwards, who's H B Edward at H B Edward, uh, wants to know to touch on happier times. What are both your Arsenal origin stories? How do y'all begin supporting AFC? Ah, great question. Do you want to go first? Yeah, why not? Okay, so this is a good one. So I, well, it's I come from a, a lineage of Chelsea fans. It's really unsettling stuff, mm. um, and really that's what I should have been born into. But when I was about, I want to say about four years old, my dad, who was a Chelsea fan, took me and my brother to a sports shop to buy us uh, Chelsea shirts. And when we were in the shop, I got very upset and refused to have a Chelsea shirt and insisted that I wanted this red shirt with white sleeves. I was quite into red at the time, and I was really struck by it. It had a cannon on it. It was very, very cool. And I basically would not accept a Chelsea shirt and demanded the red shirt instead. My father, thank the Lord, acquiesced uh, and got me the Arsenal shirt. And from that point on, I've been Arsenal. Wow. Wow. And so it could have, I mean, thank God it wasn't a Charlton shirt or something like that. <laughs> could have been a lot worse, in fairness, because your brother, of course, is a yeah. Chelsea fan, as we know. 
to this day to this day so but I, you know and, and i think as well having brother having a brother and being in kind of natural competition with them sort of for my entire life i think having different teams as well probably kind of made me more passionate about arsenal do you know what i mean there was mm. that that inherent rivalry there of and course. that was kind of part of our upbringing too so yeah that was that was pretty cool. I, I, I love the idea of you being four years old and i'm, I'm really into red at the moment i'm loving red yeah <laughs> <laughs> it go- was primarily a fashion choice. <laughs> yeah. I'm going through my red phase. Um, sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, my my interest in kind of sartorial matters has really declined over the <laughs> next 25 years, as <laughs> as is probably evident. Yeah. Uh, but good- yeah, look, I good- still like red. Yeah, thank goodness there wasn't a, a football shirt made out of grey tracksuit pant material. You'd have been in, in I there. I mean, like honestly. Flint. If, if Gabriel Carali had been playing in that age, you know, <laughs> I would have just supported any team that he represented. Yeah, well, look, I think mine is um, mine is based on the fact that I was uh, an Irish boy growing up in England uh, in the 1970s. And uh, I, I think I've told this story before on a couple of different podcasts, but, you know, we were we were over there. So when, when I lived in England, I was uh, I was a paddy. Every, when I went to school, um, even though I didn't sound like a paddy, I sounded like a good Yorkshire lad because that's where we were living after uh, we moved up from from London. Um, I was a paddy. That was the thing, and we were we were brought up in that way. Both my folks were from Dublin, and we were we were always brought up as Irish, but living in England. And I think you you look for something to to connect with. You know, um, it wasn't in my school. For example, because everybody there was was uh, was English, um, we played football and all that in school. But you know, you, you look for these things that you can connect with. And during the nineteen seventies, Arsenal had Liam Brady, they had Frank Stapleton, they had um, uh, fucking who the hell? I'm forgetting names. David O'Leary, of course. Uh, uh, David O'Leary, yeah. David O'Leary. There was Pat Jennings. There was Pat Rice. Pat there Jennings, was yeah. Sammy Nelson. There was John Devine. Of course, you know, I didn't really see at that point, um, you know, not being the most uh, politically interested seven-year-old, uh, you know, I didn't really see any big difference between Ireland and Northern Ireland. So they were just, it was just another sure. Irish connection. And Arsenal was absolutely full to the brim uh, of Irish players. And I think that's... I don't remember making a conscious decision to support Arsenal. I don't know quite how it happened, but I just assume that because of these Irish players and me being, you know, a a young kid who loved football, uh, living in England, these Irish players made a connection with me. And, of course, that that was Arsenal. So that's where it came from for me, I think. So there you go. And what about the mug smasher? How did that happen? Was he just a glory hunter? What what happened there? I, I really don't know. I don't know because he's three years younger than me. And of course, he would have been growing up around the same time as uh, Liverpool were winning lots of things. But I don't know how yeah. aware he was, for example, you know, as a four-year-old in 1978 or 79 of Liverpool <laughs> winning the league. I, I just don't, I don't quite know how it happened, but it probably was. Yeah, he probably is just a, a glory hunting bastard. Um yeah. Who's now paying for it? He's paying for it yeah. now, isn't exactly. he? <laughs> After all those early years of uh, enjoying titles, uh, he hasn't had one for a while. But no, I think I think uh, again, like you, it, part of it might have been just to be different uh, from your brother. Yeah, to have that thing that you can fight about, or just at least take the piss out of each other over. So I mm. think that's what mm. it was. So there you go. That's how it. That's how it happier, happened. Happier times, and here we are, all these years later. Who knew? I mean, James, if we hadn't become Arsenal fans, we never would have met. We wouldn't know of each other's existence. It would, what a strange no. world that would be. 
I know, I know. I mean, you know, in a way, you know, there is a comfort in these long chats we have, isn't there? <laughs> Record and send out to people. There's something to be derived from that. There really is. Um, there really is. So, yeah, I mean, look, I, 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 for, for all that's been, you know, I might have to go and listen to your chat with the right again, but why it is that I like Arsenal yeah. after the weekend. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Anyway, look. Um, I'm just going to go and watch uh, compilations of, you know, Ian Wright goals and, you know, Thierry Henry and oh, things that I, somebody posted fuzzy a, inside. Somebody posted a video the other day. It was a Thierry Henry video, and it was like... Uh, it wasn't even him scoring goals. It was 11 minutes of Thierry Henry doing skills and tricks and running past players and, and you know, bamboozling them and great passes and, oh, fuck. It was great. It was really good. You yeah. fuck, forget how good he was. Um, you know, you think of him as a as a goal scorer, and and that that's kind of it. But God, he could do some things. Um, so yeah, maybe that's that, yeah, maybe sure. that's what we all have to do this evening is go and watch a, a favorite Arsenal compilation and uh, calm down and see what we can uh, sort out before Sunday's game against Manchester United. It's going to be fun. And Jose Mourinho, mm. God. Oh, God. Oh, dear. Well, look, <laughs> you'll be back with an exciting preview of that, though, soon, right? I will on Friday. We'll, to it. we'll have an cast on Friday, and we'll be here <laughs> on Monday looking back on whatever yeah, yeah. the fuck happens there. So uh, let's hope we have something cheerier to talk about than we did today. So uh, as ever, to everyone, yeah, thank you for listening. Um, thanks. thanks. Thanks for sticking with it. Yeah, we're, we're sorry. We're sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We'll catch you on the next one. I know. Enjoy your compilations, guys. Bye bye. This holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply.